Hello, and welcome to the Church 860 podcast. My name is Pastor Chris, and I'm the lead pastor of Church 860 located in Westerville, Ohio. Our podcast will have daily episodes uploaded where we have curated some of the best Bible teaching from across the globe. We hope you enjoy today's episode. We got ourselves a doozy of Luke chapter 14. We can get into that. But uh, God's doing some good stuff. And uh, I'm really excited. And uh, even for the midst of summer, kind of think of the dog days of summer with the heat kicking in. I guess it's supposed to get up to 95 uh, today and tomorrow. That's hot. So... uh, we got the air on, we got plenty of food, some coffee, we're having a party. Let's uh, open up in prayer and then we can get into Luke chapter 14. Dear Heavenly Father, we do thank You and praise You that You are just an awesome, awesome God. We thank You, Father, that You are full of love and compassion towards us, the sinner. We pray, Father, for Your Spirit to inhabit this dwelling that You would fill our hearts and our minds in this building, Father, so that we could understand clearly who and what You are. Father, we want to bind the enemy. We ask that this would just be a time for us to have ourselves engaged with You through Your Spirit, Father, and the blood of Jesus that opens up the door so that we can have access to You. Father, I thank You and I praise You for the wonderful things that have been happening and... uh, We just uh, give you this time. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, In Luke chapter 14, we're kind of digging into uh, a subject one more time. And it almost gets to be a little old hat for us. But it says in verse 1, it says, Now it happened, as he went into the house of uh, one of the rulers of the Pharisees to eat bread on the Sabbath. That's their Saturday, but it was their holy day. And as he goes into this house of a Pharisee, a religious ruler, we said the Pharisees were, they were the Jews that were very religious, that they watched him closely. They're staring at Jesus, eyes glued to him intently, saying, what is he going to do? Because they knew that there was going to be a problem because it says, and there, and behold, there was a certain man before him who had dropsy. And Jesus, answering, spoke to the lawyers and Pharisees. So now we got some lawyers in the house saying, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? Now, if we've been around this, we're going back into another Sabbath issue. And as we talked about last week, that Jesus is hammering home to these people To the Jews especially, he's trying to shatter the mold. He's trying to break away of their thinking. He's trying to get them to understand that they're hard-headed and stubborn people and they're blind to something that's in their life. And sometimes I find it very interesting that here is Jesus walks into a house. Nobody said a word. And once again we're seeing that as they're rising and and raising up questions in their minds, Jesus speaks to what's happening in their hearts. They're not even asking the question. 
I'd want to sit down, if I was one of the lawyers or Pharisees in the room, my response would immediately be, hey, I didn't say nothing. What do you mean? You know, is it lawful to hear all that? I'm not talking about the Sabbath, Jesus. Why are you asking this again? And notice, if you would, if Jesus is posing a question, he's the one speaking about what they were thinking. And I don't know about you, but when Jesus asks a question, I do think it's pertinent for us to be able to answer the question. I think a lot of us have questions for God. Why do we always seem so blind and immune to what, what God may be asking us? The, the true student, the disciple of the Lord would say, Lord, what are you asking of me? And now, how can I change my life to answer that? But yet so many of us turn around and say, well, Lord, I got a question for you and you better jump through my hoop. And that's just the wrong approach to God. You jump through my hoop to prove something to me, God. And God's the one saying, excuse me, on Judgment Day, you're going to answer to me. And we have to put that our position correctly before the Lord. And so if you would, Jesus, as he's dealing with these stubborn people, he's asking them this question again about whether or not it's safe to heal or is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath. So understand the scenario. There's a guy there with dropsy. Dropsy is, you know, another word for klutzy. No, it's not for klutzy. It, 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 means, it means a swelling of the body. Uh, it, it means that you're retaining fluids. And so many times, I think, when you see this, there's this guy who is swelling, if you would. And sometimes you see this in a cancer patient. We just did... Al passed away. We had a funeral here on Thursday night, and it was a, a powerful funeral service. And I like that because we knew that he was with the Lord, and he was watching himself be destroyed by cancer. And uh, one of the things that Al was suffering was is that he had a swelling of the feet in his ankles, and you could look at his toes, and they became huge. And the body's not able to process the fluids correctly, and then it starts to drop to his lower extremities, and his feet start to swell. It's a bad sign, meaning that your organs are breaking down, if you would. And here this guy is, he's sick, and during this time with Jesus, this is something that's going to kill you. It could be from diabetes, it could be from too much salt intake, but here it's, he's got a problem, and it's the death sentence written on him. And everyone's going in there, and they're seeing this. They're going, uh-oh, here comes Jesus. And I just love this mindset. Here comes Jesus. I know what he's going to do. He's going to heal the guy. <laughs> hey, I love that. When Jesus walks into the room, people automatically assume he's going to heal. They're automatically seeing a problem. And, and, and instead of saying, gee, look at this guy who's sick. Let's go care about him. The only thing they can do is... Let's go see if Jesus is going to really heal the guy. Let's go start a fight and, and, and see if... Because I know Jesus. His, his character is that he loves and he heals and he touches. But we want to start a fight over this on whether or not it was done on the right day. And for the Jewish mindset, this is exposing their legalistic approach to life. Everything has to happen in their nice little box. Everything has to happen according to their pre-programmed way of viewing. Uh, if you were all here last week, we just went through this argument in chapter 13. 
where there was a lady bent over for 18 years and and for for 18 years this lady suffered and Jesus comes up and heals her and he asks the very same question for us this is almost like a repeat of last week and a continuation in chapter 13 verse 15 he says as he healed her he says then the Lord answered and said to him hypocrites does not each one of you on the Sabbath loose his ox or donkey from the stall and lead it away to water it? So ought not this woman, being a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan has bound. And then, I love this, he goes, think of it, turn your brains on. For 18 years, this lady's been uh, under the, the, the yoke of Satan. He goes, to be loosed from the bond on the Sabbath. And when he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the multitude rejoiced for all the glorious things that were done by him. So as we're going into chapter 14, this almost sounds like, wait a second, we just taught this last week. We just went through this in the last chapter. Jesus, you're, you're hammering home this whole thing of a donkey and on the Sabbath, and you're bringing it up again. If you're keen students, you were with us all the way back to chapter 6. And in chapter 6, Jesus actually answered this question twice in the same chapter. Once with the guy with the withered hand and another time about the washing of hands on the Sabbath for him to make bread. You want to go, what is this with this Sabbath issue? It's big. And somehow or another, that's an underpinning problem inside of so many of us is that for the Jews it was what day certain things were done. But I'm amazed that in America, in you and I, we have the same problem where we want to stifle, shut off God because we just feel that He's not going to work in this way. And Jesus is trying to smash and to break our thinking and He's trying to say, hey, let's go back to this. We have a guy sick. He's going to die. Now, I'm going to go in and heal him. And you're having a problem with this. Don't have a problem with what God's going to do. Don't limit him according to your own little restrictions. And so, if you would, Jesus wants to go into this. Now, I, I find it interesting that you're seeing that this guy's got this dropsy. Uh, whenever there's a, a problem with somebody in the Bible, uh, a, an illness, a sickness... A, a malady, if you would, I, I find that there's a physical problem and that has a correlation to a, a spiritual problem. So here, if you would, there's a group of people, the Pharisees, and they're looking at this guy who's retaining fluid. Things are breaking down. I guess that's what happened. We had, uh, when Carla was pregnant with twins, they developed what was called hydrops. It's water retention inside of the twins. You can look at it inside the ultrasounds. And they had baby A and baby B. And one of the babies, both of the babies developed hydrops. They started to have swelling inside of the body. They're retaining fluid. And what happens inside of the embryo or the baby that's growing is if they start to retain so much fluid, then it crushes in their brain and it destroys them. And one of them developed the hydrops as they called it, the dropsy that started to swell inside of this baby and 
And they thought, well, it's because it's a Down syndrome baby. Down syndrome babies have holes in their heart, and the little baby can't be pumping enough blood or fluid through its body because the mother pumps it in and the baby is supposed to pump it back out. And so if you've got a hole in your heart as an infant, you're going to develop this high drops. So you're going to start swelling, and then you explode and you crush yourself. And that happened to one of the babies, and they assumed that it was going to happen to the other one. And miraculously... Nathan, who was born, did not have that same problem happen to him. And if we were to look at that in the spiritual sense, so many times we're looking at these Pharisees and the Sadducees and look at what's happening. They are taking in fluid. They're, they're developing and growing and they're, 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 they're taking in God, God, God. But what are they not doing? They're not putting out. They're not, they're not getting rid of the fluids. They're just taking in, taking in, and taking in. And so many times in our life, that's what we are as spiritual Christians. We sit down at the Lord's dinner and we take a spiritual appetite and shove our faces full of God's Word. And what Jesus is saying is if you're not going to take that God's Word and, and do something with it and have compassion upon someone else with what God has done for you, you start to swell up until you explode. Same process with a locomotive. You take a, the old steam engine and it's got a, a, a boiling tank inside of it. You throw some water in there. You put a little fire in that steam engine and you sit down and you stoke the fires and you get that thing boiling. Well, what has to happen with those old locomotives is there has to be a time to put the wheels in motion to chug-a-chug-a-chug down the track. And if you're not doing something with that pressure, that energy, and you let that sit there on the track, the locomotive just explodes on the track. I don't know if you remember that. A couple of years ago, they used to have a piece of farm equipment up there. They got these old steam engines, and it blew up right there because it didn't have that relief valve inside of it working a whole bunch of people died up at some state fair up there in Ohio. And you go, what a, what a, what ha-? that's the same thing with, with you and I as a believer. There is a process for us when we, we take in, we, we process the things of God, and then there has to be an output. There has to be something. And here the Pharisees, they studied God's Word. They walked with God as best and as hard as they could to say, what letter of the law, where am I at? And all they were doing was just developing this steam and they're going to really self-explode. We saw last week where the synagogue official was filled with indignation because Jesus healed this lady that was bent over for 18 years. She, he, this guy's mad. He's exploding on the tracks because he has no place to vent, no place to put all of his energies. <clears throat> so if you would notice what the text is here, Verse 4, he says, but they kept silent. <clears throat> so Jesus asked the question, and they're like, well, as any lawyer, we don't want to commit to anything in what we're saying. He says, they kept silent. And Jesus took him and he healed him. Amen. The Lord doesn't care. He just goes in and he sees a problem. He has compassion and he heals. And so he healed him and he says, and let him go. Let him go. And he answered them saying, which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit? Once again, the same verbiage, almost from chapter 6 to chapter 13, now back to chapter 14. Which of you having a donkey or an ox that has fallen into a pit will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day? Wouldn't you take care of a dumb animal? And here it is, you can't take care of someone else. 
And they could not answer him regarding these things. They're, 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 they're sitting down there in their own little mind games, getting twisted apart, and the truth is, is there's nothing. When the rubber meets the road, when the reality of them caring about somebody else, they're quiet. They're missing the, the compassion. So he told a parable, a parallel story to reality, if you would. He told a parable to those who were invited the guys that were sitting there at this Pharisee's house, when he noted how they chose the best places and saying to them, oh, he says, when you're invited by anyone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in the best place, lest one more honorable than you be invited by him. And he who invited you, and him come and say to you, excuse me, Give this place to this man. And then you begin with shame, shame to take the lowest place. Jesus says, but when you're invited, go and sit down in the lowest place so that when he who invited you comes, he may say to you, friend, go up higher. And then you'll have glory in the presence of those who sit at the table with you. And then he gets to his point and he says, For whoever exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. I always have to tell this story and have to tell everyone that this is the story that uh, I was sitting in a Bible study in California and uh, was there with uh, my prospective wife-to-be. And they taught on this passage, and then afterwards we went out to eat. And when they were saying, hey, give us, uh, you know, a table for so many people. We had 13 people with us and my wife turned around, Carla turned around and said, hey, hey, put us in the back. Put us in the back because, you know, we don't want to be, you know, showing off to anybody. And she remembered this story and I said, that's the girl I like. She just heard the message and she's able to put it into direct application. So it just has a warm spot in my heart. But the story's rather simple. You think about going to a party and they have the head of the table, and they've got a place of honor, and uh, there is nothing worse than uh, being dragged back, and somebody, you, you go to a wedding, right? Wedding feast, what do they have? They have the table for the bride, the groom, and and all the uh, the ushers and stuff, or whatever's right there with the head table, and then you got all the rest of the tables where other people are at. And it'd be like you being dumb enough to walk up there and say, hey, I'm going to go sit up there with the bride and groom. Now look at that table. They get their food first and look at them. They get, uh, they get a little bit higher up on the platform. So I'm going to go join them. And then somebody walks up to you and says, uh, excuse me, uh, this isn't for you. And you realize how dumb you looked as you've got to get dragged back in front of everybody else and says, why don't you go sit in the back of the room? And what would be best is if Jesus says you go to the wedding and you, you say, I don't know where I should sit. I'm going to go sit in the back first. And then all of a sudden someone walks up to you and says, hey, hey, what are you doing back here? You're, you should be up at the table of honor. Come on up. And then everyone sees you go forward in front of everybody else and says, yes, I must be sitting up front. And Jesus is saying that's common sense. He's watching these people at this dinner. And what are they doing? They're, they're nudging and pushing and shoving their way to the top. They want to be recognized by other people. Jesus is just watching the people and he says, man, look at, look at mankind pushing and nudging and fighting his way to be number one. The spiritual principle is, is, hey, if you humble yourself, you'll be exalted. 
If you want to have the ability to exalt yourself and be filled with your own pride all the time, you're going to be lowered, and that process hurts an awful lot more. There has to be some type of process where we have to stop pushing and shoving, and listen to this, even manipulating the law, the law to our own advantage. So many people love to take God's law, what right and wrong is, and they use it as a tool to hurt other people. story goes of the guy that goes down to Texas. He's down there duck hunting down there in Texas. And as he's down in Texas duck hunting, he goes down there, he sees the uh, geese, ducks fly out, shoots at one, and the thing goes and falls over on this other side of the fence. So the guy's sitting there and they're going, okay, you know, what am I supposed to do in this situation? So he says, well, I've got to go climb over this fence. And as he's getting ready to climb over the fence to go get the duck that he just shot, the uh, farmer comes over and says, what do you think you're doing? The guy says, well, I've got to get that duck. I just shot it. And he goes, well, that ain't your duck. That's my duck. The guy goes, no, I don't think so. I think that's my duck. I shot it and killed it. And he goes, no, it's on my property. You're in Texas now. And you're going to deal with things the way it is. That's my duck. And the guy goes, excuse me, I'm a lawyer, and I think that I can have every rights to when I shoot a duck, I know the way things go. And he goes, well, you know, I don't know where you're from, but down here in Texas, uh, we don't do that. And the guy was getting upset, and finally the farmer turns around and says, well, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll, we'll deal with things down here Texas style. Well, the lawyer turns around and says, what's that? He goes, well, down in Texas, we got this thing called the three-kick rule three-kick rule. He goes, what's, he goes, what's the three-kick rule? He goes, well, it's real simple. He goes, I turn around and I'm going to kick you as hard as I can for three times, and then you're going to turn around and kick me as hard as you can for three times, and when we're done, we'll see who's standing and who gets the duck. The lawyer says, you know, I've been working out. I'm kind of buffed. This is a little hick hillbilly down here in Texas. Don't seem too afraid of him, so the guy said, fine. So the farmer turns around, Kicks the guy as hard as he can in the shin. He feels a shearing pain through him. He's buckling over in pain. He feels like he probably just broke his leg. But the guy's just sitting down there saying, man, I can handle this. I can handle this. And as he's buckled over in pain, whack, up comes another kick from the farmer. And he just sits down and gabs him right there in the, in the gut, knocks the wind out of him, and he's gasping for breath. And as he's trying to fight for another breath, whack, the third breath, you know, kick comes in right there across his, his shin. And the guy's buckled over in pain, and he's just gasping for all that he can. But he's saying, man, I survived this, man. And he gets up, he goes to his feet, and he says, okay, buddy, it's my turn to start kicking you. Farmer goes over and says, no, you can have your duck back. <laughs> you go, hey, <laughs> Rob. And you, go, and you go, it's amazing on how people can manipulate the law to their own advantage. It's amazing how people, really, they only see the law one way. Uh, this is what stops everyone else from doing something wrong, but the law is never there for me. And for you and I, we have to come to a place where the law and God's ways, God's ways have to be something that's applicable in our lives. And what happens is all we do is we take things in, we take things in, we never want to make a change in our hearts and in our lives. And that's what's happening here. These guys just are pushing and shoving their way to the top of the party. They want to be number one. 
And Jesus is like, the whole process of the law was to break you, to make you humble, to say, Lord, I failed, I need help. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the lawyers took the law and they twisted it so it, it came out that they could be filled with pride. The very thing that should break, break pride, became something that built pride in them. And so, verse 12, he also said to him who invited him, he says, when you give a dinner or a supper, he says, do not ask your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors, lest they also invite you back and you be repaid. Well, what honor is that, Jesus would be saying. You invite all your buddies over, then they invite you over. You're not giving anything away. You're just patting yourselves on the back. He says, but when you give a feast, you're having a party, invite the poor the maimed, the lame, the blind. That sounds like a great party, doesn't it? And he says, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you. And I love this, for you shall be repaid at the resurrection of the just. So instead of trying to you know, in, in, uh, kiss up to everybody and show everybody how rich you are and to impress man, why don't you give something away genuinely to somebody who cannot pay you back? The poor, people that can't afford it, the maimed, sick, the lame, people crippling the, and the blind. He goes, those are the people, when you give to them, you can, have a, you can get a, a, a blessing at the resurrection. And God's going to say, well done. That's the true reward. No greed and there's no room for manipulation when you're just giving to somebody who can't pay you back. Now, when one of those who sat at the table with him heard these things, he said to him, well, blessed is he who shall eat bread in the kingdom of God. I don't quite know what to make of this, but obviously some guy's sitting here at the table. He hears Jesus say this, and he goes, well, okay, well, I guess I'm here, so praise the Lord. Okay, I'm doing something right. So one of the guys stands by, and he makes some comment, an offhanded comment, and, uh, and Jesus keys in on that to go a little further. Verse 16, And when he said to him, then he said to him, a certain man gave a great supper and invited many. And he sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, Come, for all things are ready now. So you got a guy who's putting on a huge spread. And, and he's telling all of his friends, Come on over to my house for a party. He says, But they all with one accord... They began to make excuses. Oh, the first one said to him, Oh, I bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I just, I'm sorry I can't make it. i got more important things to do. i got to go check out this piece of property I just bought. I ask you to have me excused. You know, pardon me, but I can't be there. Then another said, Oh, I bought five yoke of oxen and I'm going to test them. Uh, I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, oh, I married a wife, and I therefore I cannot come. Sorry, guy, I got some more important things to do. So the servant who was out there trying to get these people to come, and they came and reported these things to his master, the head of the household that was throwing the big feast. Then the master of the house became angry. And he said to his servant, fine, 
My friends have stabbed me in the back. Go out quickly into the streets, into the lanes of the city, to the highways and the byways, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Well, Master, it's done as you have commanded. We have scraped as far and as wide as we can to get anybody here, and still there's room. We've gone to the bottom of the barrel, and there's still room. Then the master said to the servant, Go out into the highways, into the hedges, and compel them. You compel them to come in, that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of those men who were invited shall taste my supper. Now great multitudes went with him, and he turned and he said to them, If anyone comes to me, and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, also he cannot be my disciple. A lot of things are being said here in this parable. First off, we're seeing that Jesus has been looking for true disciples. We've been talking about this theme throughout all of Luke. That Jesus says that there's the sower that goes out to plant seed and one of the seed falls along the roadway and the birds come and snatch it up. Some of the seed turns around and, and uh, falls out there into the shallow ground. It sprouts up but it dies quickly. Some of the seed turns around and grows into the weeds and they choke it out so it cannot bear fruit. And finally, there's the good soil the true disciple that takes God's Word, receives it and planted into his heart, and it starts to change and bear forth fruit a hundredfold. And now Jesus has given us a criteria for what it is to be a true disciple. And so if you would, he's using this parable, so it's important that this parable is turning personal. He's speaking about you and I. He's going to make this parable to be the master who's throwing the party is going to be God. God has invited, and you could read this parable, and it becomes another slam on the Jews. As we're students here, you're starting to see that Jesus is making some direct accusations against the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and the Jewish people. God's chosen people the ones that should know what they are doing. Talked about it last week, to whom much is given, much is required. And what we're seeing here is that there are people that should have been invited to the party. The nation of Israel. They had God's first invitation. And what happened is they turned around and they said, well, i got more important things to do. I'm more worried about dissecting the Sabbath and I really don't care where God is and what God's doing. He's asking me to come to the party, but I can't because they come up with the law as lame excuses to why they can't be with God. I can't love this poor guy with dropsy up here who's on his deathbed. I can't take care of this lady that's withered. And I can't care about the guy with a withered hand. Who cares about them? I'm more concerned whether or not I've washed my hands correctly. I'm more concerned on what day it is. And they were creating excuses in their minds on why they could not be obedient to have the heart of God of compassion. 
And Jesus is speaking this directly to them. They were the first invited. They blew off God. And then you're seeing another reference here to the poor, the maimed, the lame, and the blind. Last week, we saw Jesus was giving the same thing. He says, well, you got the Jews on Judgment Day. They're going to be left out. They should recognize Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Extremely Jewish terminology. The door is going to be shut. They're going to be asked to be removed. They're going to miss going in with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And clearly, you're seeing the terminology for all the Gentiles, all those that came from the north, the south, the east, and the west. And now the Gentile world, you and I, is being compared to the maimed, the lame, and the blind. So check this out. You and I, if we're the Gentiles, God came to the Jews. Jesus Christ came to his own, and his own knew him not. He came to the Jews. The Jews have rejected Jesus, and now it opens up the doors for the rest of the Gentiles to come flooding in. So guess what? You, me, and everyone else, we're equated with the lame, the blame, and the shame. We get the short end of the stick. And who's that? That's you and I. And what we do is we take this as an open invitation of God's mercy. He says, look, if those who are my children have rejected me, then I'm going to open up the door to the Gentiles to have them come in, and I'm going to love them, care for them, and I would want anyone to come in. And then even if the Gentiles want to refuse... Interesting terminology. God says, that ain't enough. I want to fill my house. Notice, he says, he says the word, and this is only in Luke. I think the parable is also in Matthew. But Luke uses that terminology to say, compel them. I believe it was Augustine that used this text that uh, justified taking somebody and they ended up twisting Augustine's teaching so that it said, well, we're going to have the Crusades, and if you don't accept Jesus, we'll cut your head off. So during the Crusades, when we're all out there fighting the Muslims, we're going to go into the highways, into the byways. We're going to go to the bottom dredges of the pot, if you would. We're going to find uh, uh, some heathens. We're going to tell them to convert or die, and then we chop their heads off. And they could throw in the text and say, well, doesn't Jesus say you've got to hate them? And they could easily turn around and twist this passage so that the Christians become ambassadors of hate. And that's the exact opposite of what Jesus is trying to say. We're hearing a very difficult passage here. Jesus comes up and he says, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children... A lot of people hear that and they go, wow, you're telling me I've got to hate my mother and my father if you want me to be a true disciple? I've got to hate people? Well, please, first off, put it in context of the parable. Jesus is saying it's a matter of to hate something is to despise it or to put it into a place where it should be in the proper perspective. It's what you're going to put in there as far as a priority. Your priority should be God first, mom and dad second. Now, I'm not asking you, and I don't think Jesus is asking anybody to turn around and says, Mom, I really hate you. I'm just going to be a good Christian. Dad, I hate you. That's not what he's saying. 
I think there's some shock value in the statements he's making. I think he wants to raise some questions in our minds so that we go, what did Jesus just say? He just said to hate? I'm supposed to hate my mummy and my daddy? That's not what he's talking about. And no Christian would ever want anyone to hate someone else. It's just a matter of prioritizing your life so that all of a sudden you would not want to put something else in front of God's invitation. Because, check this out, God's chosen people, the Jews, had started to put God on the back burner to all their other rules and regulations. Instead of sitting down there saying, God, you're more than able to work. You are more than able to do anything in my life. Instead of being open to the power of the Holy Spirit to accomplish anything, you and I have the ability, just as the Jews, to systematically eliminate God because we have our prejudices, our hatreds, and our priorities out of whack. Yeah, we should be able to say, God, it's you first, and I will come and serve you come hell or high water, as they say. A little appropriate for this week's weather. And to say, hey, I want to sit down and serve you, Lord, no matter what. And I am sorry, I am astounded at the level or the lack of intestinal fortitude inside of a believer that seems so unwilling to do anything for God. We all want to come and we all want to get, but we never want to give or put out. And what Jesus is doing is he's stroking us to say, you know what, you've got to put out. You have to, if you're receiving the love of God, you have to be able to express that, release that, put that you know, into a place or else you are going to explode on the tracks. It is an unhealthy, unproductive Christian that just takes and takes and takes and takes. There are thousands of Christians that have an intellectual approach to God. They look at God as a mere contract. They can read and study everything into the Greek, into the Hebrew. They know all the intricacies of the Bible. They just never put it into practice, into taking care of the poor, the lame, or the blind. And there is enough people out there that are dying to get a spiritual diet, and we hold back. We're the blame. We're the blind. We're the ones that are that way. And sometimes that really grates against us to say, God, oh, you get to invite me to the party, God, and I'm just a cripple? That's all you think of me? And God says, hey, you're here. You're invited. That's humbling. And that's God saying, you in the back, come on forward. God's the one that says, you know what? If I said to throw a party and you take the people that are all full of pride, you throw them to the back and the humble people you ask to come forward, you know what God's doing? God's the one throwing the party. God's the one that says, this is how I'm doing it. And I'm going to demonstrate true love. I'm going to give you, listen to this, I'm going to give you something because I know you can't pay me back. Don't you love that picture? That's a picture of pure grace. God looks at me, dumb Dave Brown, and he says, Dave, I'm loving on you, and I just see you as a poor, lame, crippled fool. And you know what? I'm loving on you, says God. And he says, and I know you can't pay me back. I know you're never going to give me nothing in return, Dave. There is no way you could ever pay me back for inviting me to the party, to the marriage supper of the Lamb, to eternity and the resurrection, to be with Jesus. And I have to sit down and say, Lord, I, I, I'm crippled. I'm lame. I'm, I'm, I, I'm, I'm the guy that's sick here. I'm blind. I'm spiritually missing so much. And I love the concept that God's love is so large. 
He is giving me things that can't be manipulated, can't be twisted, can't be you know, contorted into something that's wrong. It's pure love. That's what it is. And God's invited you and I, and he says, man, I just love you. I'm expecting nothing in return. I want you to be part of the family. And then at which point we should respond and say, oh, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. And then he says another hard verse, verse 27. And whoever does not bear his cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. So Jesus is asking us, you and I, to pick up a cross and to die to ourselves. Notice, if you would, it said back in verse 26, If anyone comes after me and does not hate his father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, and notice this, even his own life also, he cannot be my disciple. What Jesus is really asking, he says, there's nothing that you should put in the way of God. You need to even hate your own life and to say, Lord, I don't care about me. I'm lame. I'm blind. I'm full of shame. I've got nothing to offer you, Lord, and I have got nothing to hold me back. I don't have an excuse. Lord, here's what's more important, that I go over here and do this. Here's what's more important. i got five oxen. I, I got land. i got property. I got Everyone's got an excuse. And a true Christian is one that says, Put a nail here, put a nail here, string me up, kill me, I'm dead. I died. I don't have a will, I don't have a want. All I can do is be thankful for what I receive. I died. Pastor, doesn't that bother you when you see people come in here with muddy boots and step on the church? I don't know, pick whatever you think somebody would be offended about cheesy example, but you know. And you go, no. I died a long time ago, I could say. I'm dead. I don't care what you do to the building. I don't care what you do to this. I don't care what you do with whatever. Who cares? We're dead. We are walking dead. We died because we picked up our cross. We followed in Christ and we know that whatever comes off of the cross is what's resurrected and that's where we're going to have life because there's no longer a will. There's no longer an I. There's no longer a want. And Jesus is saying if you want to be a true disciple, you've got to die to yourself. You're not pushing and shoving your way to the top of nothing. And then he turns around and he says, for which of you, intending to build a tower? So you're going to go into a construction project and build a tower. Now, any guy who would do that, uh, anyone who's willing to build a tower, does not sit down first and count the cost, whether he has enough to finish it. Lest, after he has laid the foundation, got it half built, and is not able to finish it. And all who see it begin to mock at him, going, Oh, look at the nut over there. Started the construction project, and we got a half built building. He goes, this man began to build and was not able to finish it. Verse 31, or what king going to make war against another king does not sit down first and consider whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. Common sense. You're out on the battlefield. You're a king. You got 10,000 men on your field and you look out there and you see 20,000 guys coming at you. Common sense would say, maybe today's not the day for a fight. <laughs> right? 
He says, or else while the other is still a great way off, he sends a delegation. Hey, we brought you some chocolates. And ask conditions of peace. Let's figure this out. Let's try and work this out as brothers. No sense of battling it. So likewise, whoever of you does not forsake all that he has cannot be my disciple. So Jesus is laying a very heavy trip on us to say that when you get into Christianity and give your life to Jesus, do you understand that you are giving away your whole life? A lot of people want to get saved and there's a lot of evangelism out there and everybody says, oh, come to Jesus and you'll get a rosy life. And a lot of people, they hear a 45-minute sermon and then be compelled to come forward, weep and cry for their sins, and really have no idea what they just have done. Jesus is begging us to count the cost. He's saying if you want to be a disciple, when you're going to follow Jesus and say, yes, Jesus, save me and deliver me, and I want to be invited to the party, that invitation comes at the cost that I have to give up everything I have, all that I could ever want or do, and it's the death to all my dreams. Oh, that's what this is going to cost me. And Jesus is telling us, if you're not going to go out and count the cost on what you're getting involved with, you have no idea what you're doing. We saw the parable of the sower. The seed goes out, it falls out amongst the birds, it snatches it up, and then it goes out there to that shallow soil. And so many people can receive the gospel, and boy, it sprouts up overnight. Woohoo, Jesus, I love you! But because it does not have a firm root, it withers and dies immediately. And many a Christian can come to our church, to any church, give their life to Jesus, come forward in prayer and tears, but they never go the distance because they allow every single thing else to come into their life and destroy it. And Jesus is telling us up front to be a believer and to walk in the fullness of Christ, to actually bear forth fruit, means that we have to die. And he's telling you, you want to be a true disciple? You want to be the, go the distance as a believer and you don't want to be consumed and destroyed by even the best-intentioned Jews that are out there that have been destroyed? We have to do better than that. It means a death to self. Wow! He's telling you to take a good hard look at it. I like it. One of the practices of the church back in the Puritan days was that if you ever gave your life to Jesus, you had to be quiet for a year. You couldn't tell anyone that you were a believer for a full year, 365 days, because you had to sit down there and learn a little bit about Jesus. <laughs> you go, what a terrible rule in the church. You go, because you'd like to see people get saved and everybody exuberant, and then everybody else sees that, and it's an infectious you know, thing to see people get saved. But on the other hand, there's almost wisdom in that. You can appreciate some of the wisdom because how many people are here today raising their hands, jumping up and down, and tomorrow they're gone? And that becomes a worse witness. Hey, did you see the five people we led to the Lord last week? Where are they, Dave? Well, they're not here now. 
What happened last week? Well, we got five people. Who knows? And unfortunately, I, you, know, you know who the worst witness is for Jesus? The church. The church is a terrible... You know how many people say, I, I like Jesus, but I'd never go to church. They're full of hypocrites. And Jesus is watching the nation of Israel consumed with their rules, their regulations, the things that they fight over, and their stubborn wills, and he's trying to smash that. And he says, in the true church, we will not have any of this. We will have death to self, and you will calculate the cost. That's heavy. You're going into battle. You're doing certain things. You better understand what this is all about. And I, I want to present a Christianity that shows us the truth. Jesus is asking you to say, are you willing to give everything for Jesus? You want to come to know Jesus? Are you willing to give every single thing you have? What if you were homeless and living underneath the bridge next year? Would you still follow Jesus? What if they took you and strung you up on the rack and started beating you? Would you renounce Jesus? If you've got a little bit of problems in your life, are you going to cry like a baby and go home? And if you're just a sissy worried about some of these things, Christianity is not for you. Wow, that's not a very good message, Pastor. You can't grow churches like that. Well, Jesus isn't looking to build the church. He's looking for a true disciple. And Jesus will take the two out of the thousands of seeds that are sent out there to say, give me two real ones out of every hundred that I plant. I'll take it. Because they'll bear forth a hundredfold and do the right thing. And Christianity has to be presented correctly to say it's a death to yourself, to your wants and your desires. And when you come to that place and say, Lord, I'm dead, I just live for you. At that point, the Holy Spirit can come into your life work through you and do the supernatural. And then you will start to see the work of the Spirit of God work through you and not you being a Christian in your own flesh. Christianity is not, well, I've got to be really good to impress you know, God. I have to do all these wonderful things. I have to do... No, Christianity is the easiest, funnest, awesome thing in the world when you see God do a miracle through you. And the only thing that, that, that holds that process up is when you get involved with it and say i'm going to straighten things out christianity is saying i'm lame i'm blind and i'm stupid lord you're inviting me to the party there is no way i can pay you back god's love and he's not asking or expecting you to pay him back he's inviting you and then you take that you receive that and you say lord then so be it and I receive what you've given to me, and now God's Spirit working through you can change the world. That's what he's looking for. He gives us another strange example to close the chapter out. He says, salt is good to uh, preserve things, to add seasoning. He says, but if the salt has lost its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is neither fit for the land nor for the dunghill. <laughs> King James for, you know, never mind. But men throw it out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What Jesus is looking for is for people that are going to make a difference in this world. 
Salt would offer a contrast, flavor, something different. And it's a very sad story when we can look at the church and you can see no difference between the church and the rest of the world. I find this to be a, a bizarre example on Jesus' part because salt is, is, a, is a chemical that you can't break it down to anything further than what it is or it wouldn't be salt anymore. It can't lose its flavor. Salt is salt is salt. You can break it down to the finest molecule and it's still NaCl. It's still salt. And yet he has this concept about how could salt ever lose its flavor. That, that it's almost like that's impossible. And, and, and it's almost like saying, if you're a Christian and you've given your life to the Lord, how can you turn around and be like the rest of the world? That's impossible. And then he asks the question, he says, well, if you're salt, what would you ever want to season salt with? This salt is lacking flavor. I need to add... What do you add to salt to make salt more salty? Right? And you go... It's stupid. You can't do that. He says, neither is it fit for the land or for the dunghill. It's not even worth throwing out. You can't even throw it into the pile out on the street. But men throw it out. It's trash. And if you would, Jesus is looking at you and I as believers. We have an obligation to be salt of the earth, to be light into the darkness. And yet so many people in Christ are mediocre they blend in with the world and they camouflage themselves to look like everyone else because they still have a will, they still push and shove their way to the top and they still have a desire for greed. A true believer, there's no greed, there's no will, there's no want. The body of Christ should never fight it should never sit down there and try and step on one another to get anywhere. There's no place to go. We're already all dead. And it is a shame to see the church split time after time after time. It's a shame to see a Christian marriage rip itself apart. And the only reason why anyone is ever going to get a divorce is because of selfishness. Me, my, and I. And when we want to see a relationship work, it takes us to sit down there and to care for and to love one another. It takes us to see a guy sitting there suffering with dropsy and say, what can we do about him? And instead, the Jews and the Pharisees said, man, we're going to pick a fight over this. Jesus is going to heal him. And it's the wrong day and the wrong time, and we want to start a fight over this. Death, death, death. And Jesus wants to bring life, life, life into you and I. And this is a very intense, strong teaching to really say, Christian, if you are struggling with things in your life, it's because we are compromising the truths of God because we still have a will and a way. The secret is to let go, trust God, and to say, Lord, I want to see you move in my life and not me. I don't want to build the church. I don't want to build my business. I don't want to build the, my friendships. I don't want my marriage to always be based upon me and what I do. I want to see God do a miracle in my life. I want to see God move to heal and to touch. And that only happens when you come to that place of being at the end of yourself. Amen? Let's stand and close in prayer.
Dear Heavenly Father, we do come before You and we thank You and praise You that it's Your love, Father, that's invited us to the table. That You know, Father, that we are poor, lame, and blind, Father, and that we cannot repay what You have given. Father, we're thankful for that. We're thankful. I pray, Father, that uh, we would not miss the invitation for lame excuses, for other things that come in front of us, but we would be serious about what's being said here today. Father, this is a very strong mandate for us to count the cost, to realize what we're getting ourselves into as Christians, and that You, Father, are asking us to give our whole life, not one day a week, not 10% of our finances, but all of our time, all of our money, all of our life, Father, to be devoted towards You. Father, what little we have as the lame, the maimed, the blind, we give to You, Father. I pray that You would take our lives, Father, and work through that to heal us so that as much as we take in, Father, we could give back, back to You, Father, so that we could have life. Father, I thank You, I praise You, and I give You all the glory, Father. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. If anyone does need prayer... Thank you for listening to today's episode of the Church 860 podcast. We hope that you've enjoyed it. If you have, we ask that you would like and subscribe to the podcast so that you can get daily updates. If you'd like to know more about Church 860, please visit church860.com. Thank you. God bless.